This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Good morning, Red Sox fans, and welcome back to the latest Fenway Rundown podcast. I'm Chris Cotillo, Sean McAdam alongside, as we record on Thursday, November 16th, offseason in full swing. You wouldn't know it, though, because the Red Sox have not done anything. Basically, nobody in baseball has done anything, though, since we last recorded, two bits of news. I think we'll get to very, very quickly one of them. Andrew Bailey is, in fact, coming aboard as the Red Sox pitching coach. They're close to an agreement. Sean, just your brief thoughts on that before we get to our mailbag and, and really while we're uh, here to record today. Yeah, let's call it maybe the first win of the offseason for the Red Sox because we know there was plenty of competition for him. The Yankees, the Orioles, and the Marlins all in pursuit along with the Chicago White Sox. But ultimately, we believe the friendship and relationship between Craig Breslow and Andrew Bailey won out. Uh, this is a guy who has earned a lot of respect and plaudits for his work with the Angels and more recently the Giants, uh, overseeing the development of a number of top starting pitchers, uh, Logan Webb, uh, Kevin Gossman when he was there, Carlos Rodon had his best season with the Giants. So the hope is that Bailey has that same kind of impact on the Red Sox pitching staff. We'll see. We are here for a mailbag. We do these differently than we used to. Everything we're going to talk about today comes from our Insider Text program. We used to take the questions from Twitter. Now we're doing them uh, from this Insider Text thing that we now have. And, Sean, I know you do it on every episode, but if you want to just remind people exactly what it is, how they can get involved before we move to the questions, and we get a lot of them this week. So thank you to the subscribers for doing that. Yeah, we're real happy that we've gotten such a response, and not just for the podcast, but on a daily basis with people uh, texting you, texting me, texting Chris Smith, and keeping up to date on all the Red Sox news this offseason that will continue into spring training and throughout the regular season. You have access to us, and thus you have access to all that is going on with the Red Sox first. And all you have to do to sign up, it's $4.99 a month. There's a 14-day trial period. That's free. And all you need to do is text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257, then click on the link and subscribe today. Getting great feedback from people who enjoy the program. We're having a lot of fun interacting with you, so hop on board and join us. I think the coolest feature, and there are many, but is just being able to ask questions for this mailbag that we're not going to answer anybody from Twitter uh, because that is, I think, a more efficient setup. Uh, we did get about 30 questions for this podcast because there is some overlap. We're not going to be able to get to all 30. We're going to get to as many as we possibly can, but there's only so many topics and people ask similar things. So we're going to go um, just kind of rapid fire here this morning and then be back tomorrow with our third episode of the week. We had a great interview with Janet Marie Smith, the renowned ballpark architect, got into her career what makes Fenway Park so special, how she enjoyed working on that project, Polar Park, and more, so stay tuned for that. But now our insider text mailbag. We start with, and I apologize in advance because I can see your names on the screen. I do not know how to pronounce the names always because it does not give me the 
fanatics behind them. So Matthew Levine or Matthew Levine? It could be either one, but we appreciate the question either way. Question is, uh, Fangraphs wrote, uh, Michael Bauman for, from Fangraphs just wrote in his article about Alex Verdugo, the phrase, barring a hell of a first offseason from Craig Breslow, the Sox will head into 2024 as the likely fifth place finisher in the American League East. Does that feel accurate to you? And Matthew, my answer, I think, to start is just impossible to know on November 16th, but remember how good this division is. The Yankees are going to be aggressive and they're going to be better next year. The Orioles are built to win for a long time. The Rays could have you, Sean, me, Chris Smith, and five others in their lineup and find a way to win 95 games. Somehow it works. It happens every year. And the Blue Jays, I think, as Dan Schulman pointed out on the podcast a couple weeks ago, uh, or a couple months ago now, time flies, that you know their championship window is closing with Vlad Guerrero, um, with Bo Bichette, with some of these guys. And so I'd guess that they're going to try to be aggressive too and trying to add some of these free agents. So these are you know five teams, if the Red Sox go all in, that are all in. You don't usually see that in a division. And so um, where the Red Sox stand in that pecking order is still to be seen, but you know it's not, it's not first, it's not second. Yeah, look, this is, as you said, a highly competitive division. And the Red Sox, on paper, uh, are fifth in talent and just finished fifth, um, you know, six weeks ago when the regular season ended. So, of course, they have to be ranked fifth. But no disrespect to Michael Bauman or uh, Fangraphs, but why are you doing a division preview before a single offseason move has been made? That seems kind of counterproductive. We don't know who's going to end up with the big free agents. We don't know who's going to pull off the big trade. The the rosters are going to look nothing like they do now when teams go to spring training in three months. So I I, I find this kind of, frankly, a, a silly exercise to start picking division winners before anybody has made any changes to their roster. Well, that means you must have missed the big Abraham Toro trade yesterday. I'm not sure who traded him or who acquired him. but I... power has tilted. You're not bullish on the Abraham Toro trade. I'll see myself out. Okay. Jason Parker chimes in with this. Do you think the Red Sox biggest off season acquisition comes via trade or free agency? I think free agency because excuse me. We know that they are uh, in search of starting pitching, elite starting pitching. And this is one of those years where there are a number of quality free agent starters that fit that profile. Uh, doesn't mean that they can't make a significant trade, but I think they're going to come away with one of Nola, Yamamoto, Montgomery. Um, wouldn't think Blake Snell's in the running, but can't rule them out, I suppose. There's four high-end, top-of-the-rotation starters. I believe the Red Sox come away with one of them, so I'm going to say free agency. I'm going to go with trade just because I think that you know, they have the prospect capital to get something done. We've talked on here about how, you know, nobody not there's not too many untouchables and they do, you know, suddenly have a lot of, you know, talent, if not, you know, in triple A or double A, but recently made the majors, whether it be Rafaela, Abreu, some of those guys. Um, I just think they're, you know, as many good free agent pitchers as there are. We saw the reports yesterday, but all the teams that want to add one and you know i think john Heyman reported there's like eight teams mostly big market teams that want to add two starting pitchers <clears throat> they're going to get outbid just because this market's going to get crazy and it's going to get crazy on the way 
of the players getting overpaid for some of these guys, whether the Phillies go all out to re-sign Nola, Snell goes to a West Coast team, let's say the Mets make this godfather offer for Yamamoto, and I think the trade market um, provides a pretty good avenue where the Red Sox might be able to offer more than a lot of other clubs. I still look at Seattle. I know it seems like a long shot. A guy like George Kirby or Logan Gilbert, to me, is kind of the perfect fit. You know, there's some other guys out there, whether that be uh, – you know, Corbin Burns or Dylan Cease or Mitch Keller, maybe, or some of these guys that are out there on the trade market. I think, um, you know, teams that have controllable pitchers to trade, unlike last off season when I don't think really, you know, pretty much nobody got traded it for a long time, if, if at all. Um, teams are going to find that they can cash in on those guys now and they're going to find a big market for it because they have so many um, free agents and there's going to be kind of that game of musical chairs. Question from John Coppolo. What is the off-season plan for Brian Bayo and Tristan Casas to maintain their level of production? And do you see Marcelo Meyer coming up anytime next season? Uh, part A first. I think for, you know, Bayo, there needs to be uh, adjustments so he doesn't run out of gas in the second half, whether that comes down to conditioning. He's a smaller guy. Um, and I don't know if they can fix this during the off season, but pitching better in day games, I'm sure will be something that comes up coming up with a better plan for that. Because at a certain point, I don't think that's a crazy anomaly. He was horrendous when the sun was shining last year and excellent at night, which is weird, but true with Tristan Costas. I think it's really about the shoulder, getting that shoulder right uh, early on because he was shut down at the end of the year. And then, you know, asking him to kind of prepare for a full workload, probably at first base in terms of Marcelo Meyer, I think we're both on the same page there that, you know, if he performs well and gets to triple A relatively early in the season, he could contribute at shortstop. I, as I think you do also see him as no longer untouchable in trade talks though, after, you know, a, a poor performance at double A and a shoulder injury, there is a chance that his value has taken a little bit of a hit, Sean. Yeah. Um, although I, you know, he's still a top 10 or top 20 uh, prospect across the industry. His value would be enormous, even if it now has some question marks attached to it with his shoulder. I don't think the performance is one that is going to scare anybody off. I think people can trace the struggles to that shoulder uh, as to whether he makes his major league debut. As you said, it's all about uh, showing up in spring training, being completely healthy, getting off to a good start, and then mastering triple uh, a to the point where he's convinced the red sox that there's no more development needed and they bring him up sometime in the second half this was a question we got from a few different people uh mark DeMellon, who is uh our resident insider text uh spreadsheet guy sending some all interesting stuff as always and then peter thebalt Again, if I'm pronouncing these wrong, send us an email, send us a note that we are because I uh, I can't get I can't there's no way for me to know if I'm sounding them out. Um, two questions around the same: Will the Red Sox make Yamamoto an offer he can't refuse, and and what kind of offer would you make to Yamamoto this winter? I think Yamamoto is going to be the guy they go hardest after. Uh, they they may uh, also have some interest in Nola and to a lesser extent Montgomery, who I don't put in that same category as a definite number one, why did the Red Sox extend Raphael Devers and not some of the other prospective free agents in recent years? I think that a lot of it had to do with an actuarial table and the fact that uh, Devers was 25, 26 at the time of his extension. The Red Sox felt a little more comfortable going on a long deal 
knowing that he was only going to be in his mid-30s when that came to an end. So there was, in theory, less risk. I think that same rule applies to Yamamoto, who's 25. You could give him an eight-year deal, and he'd only be 33 at the end. We know John Henry gets the heebie-jeebies when it starts to be uh, a free agent pitcher going into his late 30s, the risk involved there. Yamamoto's been healthy, but also he's relatively young for a free agent on the market. So I think that's going to be the primary uh, uh, attack plan and the primary target as to what he gets. I'm going to say it's at least eight years and at least uh, somewhere between... 25 and 30 million dollars on the AAV. You do the math, that's somewhere between 200 and 240 million. Maybe it goes higher, but I think the Red Sox are very aggressive on Yamamoto because he's so young. And, you know, I we were just talking about this before we started rolling. Like, I put a lot of stock into the Vegas odds of, you know, which team these guys are going to sign with because uh, these places do know something. I know you find it hard to believe, but they do. The Red Sox have the best odds uh, of any of the free agent pitchers on Yamamoto. The Mets are two to one to sign him, or, or plus two twenty, and the Red Sox are four to one with the second highest odds. So clearly, there's a lot of smoke, at least in the industry, about that. And look, they're going to be in on everybody, but I think he is the guy that that makes the most sense. Thomas Howland asks a pretty long question about a lot of starting pitchers. He talks about Yamamoto and Snell and Nola a little bit, but the one I, I will, you know, piece of this I'll bring up. Does no qualifying offer for Jordan Montgomery make him the most likely of all to sign with the Red Sox? And I would say no qualifying offer to any pitcher is going to increase their market because it's just, you know, another feather in their cap that teams can be, you know, not having to give up a draft pick to go get these guys. So every team is going to want Jordan Montgomery a little bit more because of that. Um, And because of that factor, the Red Sox included, I do kind of have a sense just guessing that Craig Breslow will be a little bit more willing to add a draft pick compensation free agent than Heim Bloom was. I think the MO is going to be a little bit different. I think the strategy is going to be a little bit different. Um, I don't think it's going to be a, a, you know, disqualifying factor on the qualifying offer. Confusing, but I think that, you know, with, with Montgomery, that's just one of those things that's going to help his case with every team. Yeah, it's a variable and it has to be taken into account. The Red Sox are desperate enough for frontline pitching that I don't think it's going to stand in the way of them signing somebody like Nola if they identify him as a top target. Yamamoto, of course, does not carry with him any compensation coming over from Japan. So that's another one that isn't going to cost them a draft pick. Excuse me. Um, I I think they're going to uh, uh, be very aggressive. Uh, If two pitchers were completely similar and one had compensation attached and the other didn't, then that's a pretty easy call. But there's a lot of shades of gray here when it comes to evaluating uh, who fits best and who has compensation. I don't think it's going to be the determining factor. It's a factor. As always, with Dan Prinzo asking, Two-part prediction question, will the Red Sox make a a trade involving at least five total players, and will the Red Sox make a signing over $150 million? I'm going to say yes and yes, just because I think they're going to add in both avenues. If you're going to add one of these big-time starting pitchers, whether it be Yamamoto, even Nola, probably, you know, I don't know if Nola will get to that range, but probably, um, and then five total players, you know, a four-for-one prospect package is the type of deal I see them making. 
Yeah, I would say take it to the bank that they spend more than $150 million on a free agent uh, to, to be playing in that field to go get a frontline starter. They have to be ready to spend that much, and I think they are. Uh, I'm less certain on the five-player deal, but I'm with you. Um, you know, if I have to choose, I say yes, because it's easy to make a, a three for two or a four for one when you're packaging a number of prospects, maybe a guy off the major league roster too, to go get that, maybe the frontline starter that you couldn't get in free agency or a second uh, starting pitcher for your rotation. So definitely more than 150 and probably a five-player deal. This next question comes from Charlie Weber. Are there any under-the-radar pitching acquisitions through trades the Red Sox can make? I think the days of them trying to go and make under-the-radar moves are generally over. You know, I mean, there are all, all these teams, I guess, and I should I should couch that. All, all these teams are always willing and happy and excited to look for the next Brennan Bernardino or the Garrett Whitlock, the guy who can come out of nowhere uh, and help. Um, but the Red Sox, I think, are going to be banking on that less and they're going to be as you've written time and time again looking for certainty so you know this guy's a proven guy we're gonna go get him this guy's a proven guy we're gonna go get him um, and i think there are trade candidates out there as i mentioned corbin burns in milwaukee mitch keller in pittsburgh logan gilbert and george kirby in seattle with a couple of the other pitchers they have like, there are guys available dylan cease you know throughout the league shane bieber um there are some guys out there that do make sense for this team they're not under the radar. They are big names. And I think that's kind of the uh, the aisle they're going to be shopping in. Yeah, I, I think they have their under their under the radar starters already in-house, whether you regard Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock as those uh, type of pitchers or even Nick Pavetta. Uh, if they go out and sign two or acquire two significant starters to go with Chris Sale and Brian Bayo, and then maybe Cutter Crawford as the fifth guy, there's a decent depth here and other options in the organization and on the 40 man roster that can uh, step in uh, when there's injuries or underperformance. So I, I agree with you. I think they're going to be focused more on high end guys than back end or, or depth starters. We go back to Peter Thibault and uh, someone else asked the pretty much the same question, the same question. Let me make sure I get the name here. Um, we're going fast and furious and, uh, want to make sure that we get to as many as we possibly can. Frank Prinsky, thank you both for the questions. Peter, you're in here a lot with lots of questions. We're going to try to get to as many as possible. Any comments on Noah Song, and does Noah Song have a future in the major leagues? I think the way you have to look at it now is, you know, the Phillies took the ultimate flyer, a no-risk type of move to see if he had – you know, the same potential he had four years ago when he was drafted. I like to use this line. I've used it on here before, and I'll say it again. You know, Noah Song was out of baseball for so long that the team, he, the minor league team he last pitched for hasn't been around in like three years, the Lowell Spinners. And so that kind of tells you something. When he came back, he was okay, but not as impressive, not as high of a ceiling uh, as he had before honoring the Naval commitment. Maybe that's just rust. Maybe it is what it is. It's obviously one of the more unique situations we've ever seen. Does he have a major league future? I think, you know, the Red Sox left him unprotected again. That was probably a no-brainer. Um, this is not a guy who is among their top prospects. It's a name to watch just because of the previous pedigree. Maybe he turns a corner with, like, a regular offseason, and now that he's back to playing full-time. But this is not a guy you can count on to be one of your top pitching prospects anymore. A complete wild card in every sense of the term, um, and not a guy that's probably going to get picked in the Rule 5 because the – 
the mystery's gone, the mystique is gone. You know, people know now what he is and, you know, what he's like after the layoff. And again, uh, with no disrespect to him, because the reason for the layoff was among the most honorable you could possibly have. Um, it wasn't the same ceiling that he had four years ago and he was drafted. Yeah, to me, I see no chance of he, him being selected in the Rule 5 again. Uh, not because he doesn't still have a relatively high ceiling with the quality of his stuff. That's probably still the case. But we saw not long ago that he's nowhere near being able to stick it out for an entire season on the Major League roster with a Major League club. He's just not ready. And the Red Sox are committed to, as you said, putting him back on the development path and almost restarting the clock here. But it's going to take a lot, and he's got a long way to go. Daryl Gianetti with a a few different questions here. We'll get to uh, two of them. Has there been any follow-up to Gabe Kapler? There was a report he was willing to consider different roles, maybe on field, etc. There has not. Um, the Red Sox have not you know, hired him in any capacity. I'm sure he's talking to a lot of teams about front office roles, coaching roles, all those types of things. And he's a guy that can probably do whatever he wants in the game. But to answer that quickly, no follow-up at all. The second question, Sean, I will throw your way. Given the nature of a slow offseason and under Bloom even slower, is there a better sense of the Sox being more aggressive to get things done sooner or still a slower methodical approach under Breslow? Right now, I chalk that up to, you know, Abraham Toro and Mark Canna trades aside. Nothing's happened in baseball. I don't think a free agent has even moved teams yet. Yeah, look, um, baseball fans know this, but we'll repeat it just in case. This is nothing like NFL, NHL, or NBA free agency where the premier players are gone within the first six or 12 hours. Baseball, uh, reflecting its slow pace of game, even though it's better on the field, takes a long time to get going. And uh, while one team could move that needle quickly and be uber aggressive in making uh, a free agent offer or some trade proposals, usually it takes two to tango. So unless you're Uh, willing to completely overspend and blow the market out, you're not going to get a top free agent in the first week because these agents want to create a bidding war and a sense that a lot of teams are in on their particular client. So if you win a player this early in this environment, it usually means you grossly overpaid and you don't want to do that just to get something done early. Peter, asking another good question here and, and news of the week that If we weren't doing a mailbag, we'd probably be talking about in more depth. The Red Sox, for those of you who didn't see it, protected two prospects for the Rule 5 draft before Tuesday's deadline. Uh, Wickelman, Gonzalez, and Luis Perales are probably the two best pitching prospects in the organization. As we talked about on Tuesday, the expectation was they were going to protect three. Shane Drowen, the lefty pitcher who was drafted out of Florida State a few years ago and emerged as one of their best prospects in the early part of the season, was unprotected. It was a big surprise. I think he's probably more likely than not to get drafted in the Rule 5 draft. Peter asks, why do you suppose Craig Breslow chose not to use the 40th roster spot to protect Shane Drowen? It's a great question and one the Red Sox has not answered publicly. I doubt they will. But uh, one of the, you know, the first, I guess, decision Breslow had to make about the roster and one that I think came as a surprise to everybody. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember here, Chris, that just because a player isn't protected doesn't mean that a organization has given up on him mm-hmm. or no longer values him. It's more of a calculation on their part that with roster spots being precious, 
they are not worried about a team taking a chance on drafting and trying to keep that player in the big leagues for a six-month season. So it doesn't mean necessarily, even though Drowen had a, a disappointing stint at AAA after his promotion, doesn't mean the Red Sox don't think he's a prospect anymore. It's that based on that performance, they don't think that there are going to be uh, other organizations who look at that and say, yeah, we think we can hide this guy on a major league roster for 162 games. Uh, they may like him too, but the realization is that he's not ready to compete at the big league level. This comes from Joe Franco. Appreciate the question, as we do from everybody. A lot of talk about who the team should get, but which free agents do you feel the team should avoid? To me, names like Sonny Gray and Eduardo Rodriguez jump out. I agree with those two names completely. You know, Sonny Gray is a guy who is older than the rest of the free agents. He's way older than you'd think. I guess he's been around for a while, so maybe not. shouldn't be that surprising, but 34, 35. He's a guy that, you know, the the way he pitched in New York, the way he reacted, the whole thing, and the way it went so sour in a big market, to me, would scare the Red Sox off and probably will. Eduardo Rodriguez, you know, Sean, you've been covering this team a long time. With no disrespect to the guy who had a really good year and, you know, is by all accounts a nice guy. Can you remember, and Jacoby Ellsbury might be the answer to this a little bit before my time on the beat, a free agent that the Red Sox were less broken up about seeing walk out the door ever than Eduardo Rodriguez? Yeah, I, I mean, we have to point out that the administration has changed and this yeah. is not the same people or the same person making the ultimate decision here. I just think that, um, you know, to, to use a phrase that manager Alex Cora likes to use a lot, been there, done that. Uh, Erod was here. He was a decent number two, maybe number three starter for a while, but always inconsistent, some difficulty staying healthy. Um, would he be an upgrade over some of the people they have on the major league roster now? Yes. Is he worth that kind of investment? Uh, hoping to, you know, rekindle something here. I, I think that ship has kind of sailed and there are other options out there for him. Would you throw Blake Snell into that group too, based on the you know trouble staying on the mound? Yeah, I, I mean, I, obviously Snell has now won Cy Young awards in both leagues, and he had a terrific season. I mean, from June on, this guy was like Bob Gibson, nineteen sixty eight. The the numbers were ridiculous with an ERA of about one five. He had something like twenty starts where he allowed you know either no or one run. Um, terrific season, but we've seen that he's not typically a guy, although this year was a little different, he's not typically a guy that gives you a lot of innings, and he's not always been consistent. So that coupled with the uh, thing, the the X factor that we talked about earlier with the compensation pick attached, to me, puts him at the bottom of the list of those elite free agents. Two questions on Masataka Yoshida. And uh, this is a guy that uh, not much talk about during the offseason because, you know, there's not much to talk about. He just finished sixth in the Rookie of the Year voting uh, and is going to be a piece of this team uh, moving forward from Peter Thibault. Will Yoshida be better adapted to a Major League Baseball schedule in his sophomore year or will Cora need to put him on a regular rest cycle? Uh, that's what happened last year. He was not playing uh, every day. And from Chris Connor. 
We appreciate the question here. Will the Red Sox explore trading Masataka Yoshida given the limitations in the outfield defense and potentially plugging up a DH spot for the next few years? Is the defensive deficiency enough to warrant a move so early in the contract? I look at it this way with Yoshida. He's not untradeable completely, but I think teams around baseball are going to look at that he's not worth $18 million a year. And the Red Sox, even though it's a different regime, would be sending a bad message if they eat salary and go and try to, you know, give up on a guy after one year that wasn't horrible. You know, he had the slumps at the end of the year and he's a limited player. We know that we've discussed it. Um, I just don't think they're going to salary dump him, but I don't think a team's willing to take on the 18 million. So where he plays is kind of to me about the rest of the roster and how it comes together. I could see if Justin Turner goes elsewhere, him getting a lot of DH reps, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, there, maybe there's improvements to be had in year two. Yeah, I mean, to me, they've got to unlock more there. Even if you start with the limitations that he has as a defender and a base runner, he's got to be available more. And there were too many times where he wore down and needed time because, oh, I just had a West Coast trip and he's not used to that. Well, you know what? Um, there have been other Japanese players who've come over to make that adjustment. And I realize it's not an easy one. Uh, Hideki Matsui missed like five games in his first four years. He was unbelievably durable, and he was a lot bigger, had a much bigger body uh, that, that you know, had to be maintained than does Yoshida. So whatever he does this offseason, it had better lead to more durability and stamina so that he can be on the field uh, however limited he may be in the outfield and provide something offensively for the money. Peter, two more questions related to the outfield. Who's the starting outfield on opening day, which is a great question. And also who's the center fielder of the future, Sadan Raffaella or Jaron Duran? I'm going to say Raffaella because I think his ceiling is higher as a defender. Uh, I think Duran for all his speed is still an average outfielder. Um, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a role here. I think he could end up getting a lot of time in left field if Yoshida DHs, but Rafaela is clearly the better athlete or at least the better outfielder. And your opening day outfield, Sean? I mean, I, I think probably to me, I, I'm just convinced Verdugo's dealt. Um, I think we'll put four guys in the mix including a DH, and of course, not sure who's going to actually be out there. Yoshida is in the mix either at DH or left field. I think Abreu is going to be on this team and in a prominent role out of spring training. I don't think Rafaela will be, so I'll go with Duran. So we're at Duran, Abreu, um, Yoshida, and I say Adam Duvall. I think there's a chance Adam Duvall comes back. He fits that roster yeah. in that mix pretty well. I would agree with that. Having said that Raffaella will be the center fielder of the future, I don't think that future includes March 28th. I think it may take another couple of months of development time before that happens. So I don't see him on the opening day roster either, but I'm going to go with the same four you did with Abreu and Wright, either um, either uh, Yoshida or Duval in center and uh, in left, even left. Ran, ran in center. Jay Dawson asks, Hi, guys. Would be interested in your assessment of the catching situation and reasonably how far away Kyle Teal may be from the Major League roster. Sean? Uh, Teal in 25. I don't see him 
uh, making his major league debut this year. I know some people are very optimistic. He has a great high ceiling. That's a difficult position to learn. As good as he was in college at Virginia, I think they want to give him a full year of development time, but he's absolutely in the mix in spring training in 25. One more from Peter for the road. Will Chris Sale be on the opening day roster? I think the answer is an easy yes. Not necessarily because the Red Sox want him to be, but there's probably no takers unless you pay a lot of that salary. And look, I don't think one of Craig Breslow's first moves is going to be a salary dump. I've said it before. I've said it again. If there's a positive from Chris Sale's season, it's that he flashed the fact that he still has a high ceiling when he's out there. You can't pencil him in for every start, but he's going to give you competitive innings when he is out there, unless, of course, he's facing the Orioles, apparently. Um, but, yes, he'll be on the opening day roster, and Alex Cora has said he's going to be their opening day starter. Assuming good health, which you can never do with Chris Sale, but I would agree that Sale is part of the roster. From Ralph A., Ralph says, thanks for the opportunity. We say thanks for the questions. Many agree that acquiring young, controllable starting pitching could be a Breslow goal. Chris suggested George Kirby as a possibility. Sean, any other kind of outside-the-box potential controllable targets for the rotation void? Well, we, we talked about all those guys. Dylan Cease, Shane Bieber, Corbin Burns. Um, uh, you know, here's one I don't think is going to happen because of the, let's call it geography. But Tyler Glass now is a guy that most people believe the Rays are going to move. Um, would they trade him within the division? We'll see. Um, they, they, it, it would seem unlikely that they're going to carry that $25 million salary this year. Uh, do the Red Sox feel comfortable giving the kind of prospects it's going to take and having those guys uh, be in the division for years to come? Would they trade Marcelo Meyer to somebody where they have to face him 13 times a year in order to get that high-end starting pitching? Who knows? But that's one name to think about. And the last two come from Nick B. Appreciate you signing up and appreciate the questions. Is Trevor Story locked into playing shortstop next year or there is a scenario where the Red Sox acquire a shortstop and move Story to second base? To me, he was so good defensively, you have to lock him in there. That is a question for down the road with Meyer, York, some of these guys that are going to come up, you know, where Trevor Story profiles. But it's important to him to play shortstop. He played it very well down the stretch defensively, and I think he's locked in there. And the final question, Sean, you can take this one. From Nick B., when do you expect Craig Breslow to address the fact that Cora is in the final year of his contract? I know you wrote about this the other day. Will he offer him an extension and you know what Cora's future holds here? No way of knowing. I did ask Craig Breslow that question in Scottsdale last week at the GM meetings. Asked him if there was any scenario whereby he might extend Cora either before the start of spring training or the start of the regular season. Uh, Breslow dodged that a little bit, said that those conversations would be, would be private between he and Cora. Um, I, I think they want to see how they work together once the season gets going. Um, it's not unprecedented that some managers go into the final year as lame duck guys. Uh, Cora's a very confident guy, confident in his ability and his skills and his marketability. Uh, while he might like an extension, I don't think not having one is going to throw him off. So I don't think it gets done before the start of the season. We want to thank all our people for sending in questions on the Insider Text program. Uh, if you have not joined, please consider doing so. You get a 14-day free trial, and then it's $4.99 a month to be able to text and get up-to-date information on the Red Sox year-round. All you have to do is text the word JOIN 
to 617-751-6257 and click on the link and subscribe. We're having fun with it. We think you will. That's been our mailbag Fenway rundown again. Thank you to everybody for the questions. Go sign up for the insider text so you can participate in the next one. And Sean, I'll let you close it with a plug for Friday. It was your idea for this guest and she was fantastic, but Janet Marie Smith joining us on the pod on the third of the week on Friday. Yeah, that'll be up on Friday, Chris, and we think people are going to enjoy it. We're going to try to do some sort of offbeat topics or topics that aren't necessarily related to the Red Sox and what's going on in their uh, off-season and hot stove. And this is the first of those. Janet Murray Smith, who was behind the renovation at Fenway, the construction and design of Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Polar Park, renovating Dodger Stadium. She had some interesting things to say about the future of ballparks and how they might change, what draws people to Fenway, what interested her in that project. So be on the lookout for that, Janet Murray Smith, on the new episode, which will uh, drop on Friday. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.